So here we are on Labor Day weekend, which um, a lot of people speak about as kind of like the unofficial end of summer. Um, you know, the end of summer, the beginning of fall comes later in September, but for a long time, Labor Day marked um, the end of summertime. Some of us are old enough to remember when all the schools started school on the Tuesday after Labor Day. It made sense. There was a nice drop-dead date there. There was a line in the sand. You could, everybody could go back to school at the same time. That doesn't happen anymore. Um, so when did fall really start, and when did summer really end for you this year? Was it August 17, when kids in Elmhurst went back to school, uh, regardless of what school you went to? That was kind of that date. Um, was summer over for you then? Uh, apparently not. I mean, people on the news have been talking about this being uh, the last weekend of the summer. Uh, the city of Naperville commemorates it with something called the last fling that goes on for the entire weekend, which denotes this as the last fling of summer. But we kind of lose the sense that, that it's really Labor Day weekend. It's a holiday weekend. What, what's it really about? What are we celebrating on Labor Day? 37% of Americans are going to be traveling um, over this Labor Day weekend. And you know that by just looking around and seeing the empty seats, right? 37%. It's about right. Um, and the number one destination for Labor Day weekend, the beach. That's kind of interesting. It's the last fling of summer, your last time to go to the beach, your last time to go to the cottage, your last time to use the boat, the last time to get away, because now we're going to get down to business. That's what Labor Day has always been kind of about for many people, forgetting that it had its history in the labor movement. The U.S. Department of Labor gives us this definition of Labor Day. Labor Day, the first Monday in September, is a creation of the labor movement and is dedicated to the social and economic achievements of American workers. It constitutes a yearly national tribute to the contributions that workers have made to the strength and prosperity and well-being of our nation. And my guess is that every picnic this Labor Day weekend, someone will read that paragraph to remind everybody about why we're enjoying this weekend. It's really not going to happen, right? It's an opportunity for many of us to celebrate work, which in and of itself is an oxymoron for many people. Celebrate work, be joyful about work. Work is something that we have to do. This is a vacation. And I find it horribly ironic that the labor movement made a holiday, a vacation day, to celebrate work. It doesn't make sense. Shouldn't we all work double shifts tomorrow to celebrate work in commemoration of work? But I'll only work a single shift today and won't start double shifts until next Sunday. So I guess that's not going to happen. I mean, we don't talk about work as a very celebratory thing. Um, in 1981, the rock group Loverboy had a hit single called Everybody's Working for the Weekend, which was a very popular song, still popular in many circles today. In fact, if you listen to certain rock stations on your, uh, on your radio, you will see that on Friday morning, that song is often played. Everybody's working for the weekend, because now work is over. We can't wait to get done with it. It's in the rearview mirror, and now we've got a chance for rest, which is what we really need. We think about... Uh, the acronym TGIF. Thank goodness it's Friday. Another celebration of the fact that the weekend is here and we are grateful that we don't have to work any longer. Um, some people are counting down the days to retirement so the fact that they don't have to work any longer. And work is often seen as a necessary evil, a curse, something that we have to do to survive and we can't wait until we ha don't have to do it any longer. Now 30 years ago Robert Bella wrote a book entitled Habits of the Heart. And he named what he, what he considered to be the thing that is eating away at the cohesive nature of our culture. He called it expressive individualism. 
Bella noted that Americans had created a culture that elevated individual choice and expression to such a level that there was no longer any shared life, no commanding truths or values that tied us together. And 30 years since then, I think that's only increased. Expressed individualism, living your own life, doing your own thing, it's all about me, has become a higher value over the last 30 years than a lesser value. He writes in his book that to make a real difference, there would have to be a reappropriation of the idea of vocation or calling, a return in a new way to the idea of work as a contribution to the good of all and not merely as a means to one's own advancement. What Bella is recommending is a return to the Christian idea that our work is not merely a job but a calling. Historically, Christians have used the word vocation for the work that we do. And the root of the word vocation means to call. But a job is only a calling if you feel like someone has called you to it. Otherwise, it's just something you do to fill your time, to earn your money, to survive or whatever. But has someone called you to the work that you are doing? And that you don't do the work for yourself, but you do the work for others. And you do the work actually to satisfy the person to whom has called you to that kind of work. When we work mainly as a means of self-fulfillment and self-realization, one author writes, we are slowly crushed and become disillusioned and dissatisfied. When we work mainly as a means of self-fulfillment and self-realization, we are slowly crushed and become disillusioned and dissatisfied. Some sectors of the business world recognize that many of us get our self-worth and value from the work that we do. And so rather than uh, giving pay raises to people, they give what they call psycho psychic raises, right? They give you a new title. They give you a new office. They give you some desk furniture. But they don't really raise your salary. I mean, look at some of the businesses and find out how many vice presidents they have, right? Vice presidents of custodial services, vice president of toilet cleaning. I mean, you give someone a title and it elevates their self-worth. Well, I'm a vice president of this company. Well, yeah, there's 14 other vice presidents in your small company, but it is psychic value. It does mean something. It gives somebody a sense of, well, my image is enhanced. I know I started out my ministry career, you know, as a college chaplain. And no one is more regimented about what kind of title you get than they are at colleges. You better be very careful about the, about the titles that you give. You know, you can start out as an assistant professor and then to be elevated to an associate professor and then be elevated to a full professor so you can look down your nose at everybody who isn't a full professor. I started out as an assistant chaplain. They didn't dare call me a chaplain because the faculty would gripe about the fact that I just graduated from I didn't have the credentials to be called an associate chaplain or even chaplain. I had to be the assistant chaplain. I didn't even know the difference until it became a, a focal point of discussion when they wanted to change my title. I didn't even understand what was going on. What difference does it really make? I'm a chaplain. But for a lot of people, it makes a huge difference in the world. As Christ followers, we're called to be countercultural. We have a unique view of life that is informed by the scriptures. We try to see and to do life through the eyes and the behavior of Jesus Christ. And so what does God have to say about labor? Well, you don't have to wait to the New Testament. You don't have to look in the annals of the Old Testament to see what labor is all about. You can go back to the very beginning of time to the creation story. To Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 and verse 15, which I want to do this morning. 
Listen to the story of creation and pick up on exactly what God has to say about labor and work. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day God had finished the work that he had been doing. And so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. Immediately preceding these verses in chapter 2 is this verse in chapter 1. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. So like a composer that writes a piece of music or a contractor who leads the building of a building or an engineer who designs something that is finally manufactured or a chef who creates a great meal that is enjoyed by people in his restaurant, God had created. And then he looked at what he created and he was just pleased with his creation. He had made the earth and everything that was in it and God had finished the work that he had been doing. And then he took a day of rest from his work. God worked. God worked. If we could go back Seth, to the previous slide of Genesis chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day God had finished the work that he had been doing. And he rested from all of his work. God was a worker. God wasn't a rester. God wasn't just a supreme being who sat back and pushed buttons and everything came into creation. God himself worked. Over and over in the Old Testament we find instances of God working. And what's interesting is that word work that is used again and again in the Hebrew language in the Genesis creation story about God's work is the word milk. Not the kind of milk that you and I drink. The milk of the Old Testament. And that is the very same word that is used for human labor in the Old Testament all the way throughout. God worked just like people worked. The work of God wasn't any better necessarily different, elevated higher than other human standards. God worked, people worked. We do the same kind of work. God started out working, and that's he created us to work. And once he is finished with creation, God is not done working, right? The second chapter of Genesis shows how God not only creates, but he also cares for his creation. He creates a man. Then he creates a partner for the man. He plants a garden. He waters the garden. He creates, a, he, God becomes a provider for mankind throughout the history of the Old Testament and in the New Testament. God is a provider. He makes provisions for us. He's constantly providing, and that's where we get the word providence. God's providence. He's a provider. He's providing for us to sustain us and to work with us. God is always at work. He's never stopped working, and we should praise God for that. Ben Witherington writes, It is perfectly clear that God's good plan always included human beings working, or more specifically, living in the constant cycle of work and rest. And so God not only worked himself, but we're created in the image of God, so why would we think we wouldn't have to work? If the Creator works, the creation needs to work. It's not a curse, as some people think, well, you know, after the fall... That's when the work really started. No, no, that's when the curse came upon it. But even in paradise, before the fall of mankind and sin entered the world, God worked and people worked. And God continues to work to this day. The leaders of the Reformation, like Calvin and Luther, referred to all work 
even secular work as it's distinguished, right? Spiritual work and secular work is a distinction that we sometimes still make to this day. All work is a calling from God. So as much as being a monk or a priest or a pastor is a calling from God, so is every other profession. We're all employees of Jesus. And we live out that employment as teachers or as landscapers or as administrators or as bricklayers or as homemakers or lawyers or doctors or salespeople or truck drivers or retirees. Whatever you are called to do, you're living out your calling of God and your vocation wherever God has placed you at any given moment of time. So we don't have jobs. From a biblical point of view, we don't have jobs. We have a calling, a vocation, and that kind of viewpoint changes everything because we can only have a calling if someone calls you to it. So you might ask, well, what's the sign of, uh, that I'm called to something? Well, the most obvious sign that you're called to something is that you're doing what you're doing right now. That you're doing what you're doing right now. That God has placed you where he wants you right now. You might not like it. You might not feel comfortable in it. You might not even understand it. But if you start to step back and look through the lenses that God has given us from a biblical point of view, and you kind of go, wow, if I look at this as a calling to which God has called me, it changes everything. It changes the way I see, the way I work, the way I perform. This is one of the things that would be my hope that college students would wrestle with. Not just a professional, I'm going to school to be an accountant. I'm going to school to be a doctor. I'm going to school to be an engineer. Well, well, the first step would be, are you called to that? And how do you know you're called to that? And what is is, is is the best sense of calling? You know, I know a lot of college students who um, felt that they were called to go into medicine and then found out that God didn't call them after they took organic chemistry. That's just kind of the way it worked. They be, they, all of a sudden they felt, oh, I think I'm called to business now. It just kind of works that way. I mean, for the longest time I felt I was called to teaching and coaching, which I was, but when I got into it, then God called me to something different. We are created in the image of God, and we are created to work. This is what Jesus had to say when he was asked about the work that he was doing on the Sabbath of healing. In John chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says, My Father is always at his work to this very day. God is always at his work. Redeeming, renewing, caring for his, and building his kingdom. And I too am working. So God in the form of God the Father and Jesus Christ are both always working. And somehow we've tended to mix up the timeline of creation Work is part of paradise before the the fall, not just something that occurs after the fall. So Timothy Keller writes about it this way. Work is as much a basic human need as food and beauty and rest and friendship, prayer and sexuality. It is not simply medicine, but food for our soul. How many of us think of our work as food for our soul? Without meaningful work, we sense significant inner loss and emptiness. People who are cut off from work because of physical or other reasons quickly discover how much they need to work to thrive emotionally and physically and spiritually. Work is part of the nurture of our soul for every human being, regardless of ability. So some of you know that um, last weekend... Uh, many of us from our church participated in the Chicago Triathlon, like kind of as a relay race, right? 
Uh, I was part of that relay. I know I don't look like a triathlete because I'm not. But I can ride a bicycle, so that's what I did. <laughs> but we partnered with Elam Christian Services. And our participation really was a fundraiser for Elam Christian Services. And so um, people sponsored us in the relay. And uh, I think that there was over $100,000, not just from our church, but from uh, all people who were contributing to the Elam cause. So that money is taken that we raised last weekend, um, and it's used to buy school supplies. And what happens is the adult clients at Elam take that array of school supplies and they put them into what's called hope kits. They're school kits, pencils, erasers, notebooks, protractors, rulers, everything that kind of goes into a, a box, very neatly, precise number of each thing. And the adult services people pack those boxes. That keeps them employed. That is their work. They need light assembly work, but they need something that gives them dignity and a sense of self-worth because they feel called to do something. So they pack these great little boxes of school supplies. And then they deliver them to schools in need. And I've had the privilege and honor, along with some of the clients at Elam, to be able to go and watch the kids in these schools get these school supplies. It's like Santa Claus came that day. It's amazing the way they respond. They open them, their eyes light up. They're so grateful, big smiles across their faces. And this year, we had an opportunity to partner with a school on the north side of Elmhurst, Conrad Elementary, and they got 40 school kits. They were supplied by people in our small group ministry. Paul Daly, our director of discipleship, contacted the principal at Conrad School. Um, he sent out an email to small groups, would you like to support this cause? I think we had 40-some school kits that were supplied along with backpacks. We, uh, Paul took them up there, and their principal couldn't have been more excited about the opportunity to give school supplies to kids in Elmhurst who can't afford to get school supplies. But the great part about this project is the dignity and the need for even the disabled to have to work. We are a people who are created with this innate need to work. I hear from retirees that they're very busy. Oh man, I don't know if I can do that. My schedule is completely full. My 90-year-old mother has no time in her very busy schedule for me. But it's because they're investing their time in things other than just themselves. They now have the freedom to work differently as a retiree. They work as volunteers in various organizations. They work differently for pay as consultants. They share their expertise and their experience with other people. They can volunteer more than they ever did before. And that's how they stay so busy. Because if they didn't do something, they might wither and die in their soul. You know, work is important for us because it's one of the ways that we discover who we are. It's through work that we come to understand our distinct abilities and our gifts, which are a major part and component of our identities. Author Dorothy Sayers once wrote that what is the Christian understanding of work? It is that work is not primarily a thing that one does to live, but the thing that one lives to do. It is or it should be the full expression of the worker's faculties the medium in which he offers himself to God. It's our work that also serves God. When you adopt that understanding, the perspective on work completely changes. 
The value of work is no longer the title that we have or the prestige of our position or the amount of money that we make. It is in embracing our understanding of who God has created us to be in our own unique way. Maybe we're a landscaper. Maybe we're an excavator. Maybe we're a doctor. Maybe we're a trader. Maybe we're a nurse. Maybe we're a teacher. Maybe we're a truck driver. Maybe we're a homemaker. They all have the same value. There's no hierarchy of prestige in the calling of vocation that God gives us. This all work matters. And there is no room for being ashamed of what we do if we're certain that this is what God has called us to do. Now, like so many other things that God has created to be good, our sin can kind of tinge them and make them bad. I mean, some of us work for all of the wrong reasons. We do find it to be a necessary evil. We'd love to win the the lottery and never have to work another day in our life, we think. Or we work for the money because we have to have the money. Or we like the prestige that our work gives us and the title that we have. Or we need to work to afford the lifestyle that we've created. I mean, I've met people who stay in jobs because uh, of the pension program and and the, uh, the other kind of benefits that they get. Well, I don't really like this job and I don't make much money, but the pension and the benefits are so great. And so they go to work for the pension and the benefits and they're miserable because they don't really like what they're doing. But the compensation plan, you can't beat Or we work because that's where we get our identity and our value. That's a particular malady for men. Too often we as men get value from what we do and how well we do it. We forget that our value comes from our creator who's equipped us and called us to use our gifts to serve the world and others in a particular way. Our value comes in our relationship through Jesus Christ, not through what we do. A kissing cousin of getting our identity through work is workaholism, where we are addicted to work. Our work becomes an idol. It's work over all other things, including relationships or faith development or physical or spiritual well-being. And technology, modern technology, has fed the need of a workaholic in a way that it's never been fed before. Um, Sometimes I like to golf. And I'll go with friends who are golfing. And they have their cell phone on constantly. And they're constantly texting and answering email. And on the phone, I'm like going, dude, we're golfing. But they can never get away from work. And they're addicted to work. And they're afraid that they're going to miss something. And something that's going to happen that they can't control. Very seldom have I gotten a text message or an email that couldn't wait a couple of hours. Very seldom. Except for the one that says, please pick up dinner on the way home. That one is important, all right? As Christ followers, we say that Christians work from a biblical worldview. And that doesn't mean that we are constantly speaking about our faith in Christ at work. It doesn't mean that Christian musicians should only play Christian music. Or that Christian writers would only write stories about conversion or the gospel or Christian-centered kinds of things. Or that Christian businessmen and women would only work for companies that only employed Christian people. Or that Christian teachers should only teach in a Christian school. That isn't what it means. 
It's a mistake to think that the Christian worldview is only operating when we're doing Christian things. A Christian worldview is a set of lenses by which we observe life. And we look at life through the lenses of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the values that God has given us. Which means that as Christians, you can almost do anything. You can be called to anything and function and give the influence of Christ. With a Christian worldview, Christians in business will see profit as only one of the bottom lines by which they measure success. It means that John Wesley was a Christian songwriter, but so is Bono. It means that Christians can write and act and direct movies that are overtly Christians, but also in those that might not be quite so obvious, where you have to actually think through where the themes might be of good and evil. We are created to work. And for all of us, that means something different. But if we are trying to figure out how our job might be a calling, maybe we could ask ourselves a set of questions like this, which I borrowed from Timothy Keller. Maybe we could ask ourselves this set of questions about our work. What opportunities are there in my profession for serving individual people? Isn't this the way the gospel taints what we do? That I'm in this to serve other people, not just to serve myself. How am I serving other people in what I do? Serving society as a large, at, at large. What opportunities are there in my profession for serving in my field of work? Maybe just the people around me or, or in my kind of calling. What opportunities are there in my profession for modeling competence and excellence? God's core values. What opportunities are there for witnessing to Christ? Those questions and wrestling with those questions can really change the way we view a job and turn it into a sense of calling. So until yesterday afternoon, I had a different illustration with which to close my sermon. Um, But I changed it this morning. Yesterday uh, morning at 11 o'clock, I had a chance to attend a memorial service um, for Ed Huskisson, a longtime member of Christ Church of Oak Brook, who also was a resident at at Park Place. Ed died a a couple of weeks ago. In fact, two weeks ago today, I believe it was, that he passed away. Um, Ed was raised in England, was sent to a boarding school at age 10. There at that boarding school, his foundation of faith was firmly laid and the values that he lived out until his dying day were cultivated. He was an executive with the Swift Corporation, a meatpacking company, and uh, served for a long time, maybe 30-some years as a trustee at Christ Church of Wilkbrook. He um, made the mistake of, of recruiting me to work there for 10 years, so he was, a, he was a great guy and always wore a bow tie. And he never quit supervising me. When he and Jan moved into Park Place, he got an apartment right across from my office. We could make sure I was at work every day. <laughs> Ed was the longtime greeter at worship services at Christ Church of Oakland. Smile on his face, bow tie around his neck, greeted you by name after only a couple of weeks. When you came to Christ Church of Oakbrook, you knew 
that you were welcome to be there. Ed was never the kind of guy who overtly talked about Jesus and his life at work or overtly led evangelism. He didn't pass out tracts. He didn't use the four spiritual laws. Not that there's anything wrong with it. That just wasn't his style. His style was simply to live as Jesus in the workplace. But one of the things he always said at Christ Church of Oak Brook to the staff of the worker, never forget about the, the people who work in the lower level, the custodians, the people who work in the kitchen, the people who work in the youth department. It's not a hierarchy. Let's never forget them. And that was the same motto he used at Swift Corporation. Never forget about everybody who works here. No matter what their job is, it's their calling. Never forget them and treat them with dignity and respect. And even though Ed didn't wear a Jesus Saves button on his lapel, you knew that when you met Ed Huskison, you met Jesus Christ. Because his role was a calling to serve God wherever he placed him. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. God in heaven, we thank you for all the efforts in your creation. We thank you, a God who never stops working. And particularly, you never stop working on behalf of your children. Help us to appreciate all that you give to us through your work. And help us to understand that you call us to be you in the places where you put us every single day. Bless us, O Lord, as we seek to serve you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, Before we worship with our tithes and our offerings, there's just a few um, announcements I'd like to make uh, to call your attention to some changes in the life of our church that are going to take place over the next week. Uh, First of all, our uh, programming is starting up in full uh, measure, uh, not this coming week, but in the following week. In your insert, there's all sorts of information about ways that you can be involved and grow in Christ and seek to serve him, and also for ways that you can uh, serve our church in many different ways as well. Um, Also a reminder that next Sunday morning we return to our two schedules of worship, 9 and 10.30. So if you come at 10, you're going to be right in the middle of nothing. So so come at 9 or come at 10.30 starting next week. We'd be happy to have you here as well. And then also we're very excited about a series of sermons that we're going to be beginning next week called The God Questions. Um, And these are very common questions that people are asking in the world around us. Uh, and they're questions that we wrestle with all the time, I think, as Christians as well. It would be a mistake to believe that only non-Christians wrestle with these, or non-Christians wrestle with these questions. What is God really like? Does God really care about us? Don't all paths lead to God? Why Christianity? This is an opportunity for you to invite people that you know and work with from your neighborhood who wrestle with God questions to come and worship with us. There are these cards available on the credenzas and on the information desk. You could just take one of these and give these to one of the people that you might want to invite to church. So some research was done at one time, I've mentioned this before, uh, with unchurched people, asking them the question, why don't you go to church? And the number one answer, no one ever invited me. So now we're making it easy to invite somebody. Give them a card. Tell them we're wrestling with these questions. They might like to come. There's also flyers with um, the subject for each week there as well. Um, And so this sermon series is going to not only... Uh, help answer these questions for people who may be unchurched, but also help us as those who are uh, Christ followers to answer these questions when they're presented to us as well. So that'll begin uh, next Sunday. 
hopefully you uh, have someone that you know that you can invite uh, to be a part of this community during that time as well. Um, now we're going to continue to worship with our tithes and offerings, a way to express our gratitude to God for all that he's given us. Um, let us be as generous with him as he has been to us. <laughs> 